Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. Today is a special guest. I mean, they're all special guests, right? But today's kind of extra special. I think because I'm totally geeked out that he's on the show. Maybe just because I'm a geek anyway. But this guy, prolific writer. He's got not one, not two, not three, not four, but five different series. And the first series is just chock full of books. Let's tell you this. On today's show, Jeffrey Deaver. We're going to be talking about the final twist. Now, I think I got turned on to Jeffrey, which you'll probably hear in the show, with Carte Blanche, the James Bond book. And I loved it. I was riveted. Could not get enough. And years later, I'm sitting here reading the final twist. Just finished it. But, man, I am so excited. Insert word geek here. Geeked out to see Jeffrey Deaver. So, without any further ado, what do you say we get in the thriller zone? Shall we? David. Jeffrey, how are you, sir? How are you doing? I'm so good. Glad to hear that. What I do is minimize the... um... I'm on my computer, the uh, white screen, so it doesn't get in the glasses quite so much. So. Oh, what a smart play. Well, have we, over the last two and a half years, well, two years, learned how to Zoom or not? <laughs> Has this become like the new, is this going to be absolutely the new norm, do you suppose, Jeff? For business, uh, yeah, for uh, for. Book tours, no, it really can't. You know, you need to get out and see fans. And I've done a few live events. I'm, uh, I did a big event in Italy live. I've done three or four in the U.S. I've had <clears throat> 10 times that in Zoom or, you know, other other platforms like uh, Crowdcast, Team, Microsoft Teams. There are a few others. Gosh, what an honor to have you on the show, man. You're so kind. Uh, John uh, Gilstrap uh, speaks very highly of you. I guess you guys had a great conversation not too long ago, and uh, so I'm glad we could put this together. Yeah, he he is a hoot and a half. I mean, big thanks to John Gilstrap. But I, I don't remember, oh, we were talking about cocktails, which we're going to get to here in a second. And of, <laughs> and of course, we're going to be talking about this beautiful book, The Final Twist, which is the one I just finished last night, a one among many. But yeah, so John and I are talking. And we're talking about our favorite cocktails and so forth. And 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 I think it was, we recorded on a Wednesday because I said, yeah, listen, I, you know, Dave, if you could wrap this up, Jeffrey and I are going to, you know, get together for a couple of cocktails. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? And he went on to talk about, it. I'm like, you know, he's, Jeffrey's like, you know, one of the biggies in my head. So, I mean, what are the chances? And he goes, oh, he's a pal of mine. Let me just make a call for you. And I'm like, wow. <clears throat> so anyway. one recommendation from, from John and, and I'm in absolutely. And, and, and Jeffrey, I'm going to, I keep going. Is it Jeffrey, but your email says Jeff. So which one are you most? I go by Jeff. I go. I'll try to keep my geek like under control. I've, I've been practicing my geek, but I'm going to tell you up front, you're going to get slapped with a pretty heavy dose. That's okay. I'm, I was a geek growing up when I was a kid uh, and I was a real geek, you know, leave it to beaver kind of geek. Not the nowadays, if you're a geek, you're a billionaire with, you know, a social pl- uh, networking platform. I actually said that at one of my events that I was a geek growing up. I leave it to Bieber. This girl came up afterwards. She said she was very angry. She said, Justin Bieber is not a nerd. 
I know it takes a minute, right? Because yeah. and you look like you might be the generation that wasn't even quite sure what Leave It to Beaver was, but you know. It, that's who I was, Jerry Mathers. That was me. Jeff, we're very close in age. We're much closer than you may think. So yeah, and that was one of my favorite TV shows of all. And and one guy that I'm constantly, I, I'm saying this to my wife all the time. I'm like, oh, don't don't make me pull a Wally Haskell. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's chat, shall we? I'll, yes. I'll turn the program over to you. You're the you're the star here, so go right ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Au contraire, you are the star. Hey, let's go back to John for a second. I want to know, because he and I, I didn't ask him, and we're, we got plenty, we've got one hour, so I'm going to get to everything, uh, Jeff. I'll move pretty quickly. How did you and John meet? I'm just curious. I got a copy of his book, Nathan's Run, his first book, from his publisher, and I get these things uh, from time to time. Nowadays, it's all uh, via uh, email and PDFs and everything, although they'll send you, certainly they'll send you a copy of a hardcover book if you want and uh, you know asking for a blurb and I read it and loved it and uh, so I I blurbed it and I got a very nice response from him probably a written letter you know those things you know pen on paper that sort of thing oh, and yeah. Um, yeah in the old days yeah. and and I you know didn't think anything more very nice of him and then I was doing a book signing in uh, Springfield Virginia and he shows up with his wife and son and he to thank me in person and uh, we said, hey, you want to get dinner at some point? And then it just uh, went on from there. And we saw each other regularly once a week when I was living in Northern Virginia. Well, I still do, but I'm, I'm here and now mostly in North Carolina. But even then, you know, like once every two weeks, we'd get together for a, you know, to chat, drink, maybe see a movie. And we just became uh, really solid friends. Oh, that's so awesome. Without being too stalky, you're in North Carolina now, you said? Yes, that's right. And what part? Uh, Chapel Hill. Oh, Okay. No, it's probably the, well, I mean, I, I like North Carolina. I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't have any problems talking about it. I'm on record as saying I, I kind of uh, lean toward the left politically and uh, Chapel Hill, a college town like Ann Arbor is a, or Austin is, you know, a really good, really good fit for me. I was born in Winston-Salem. No kidding. Really? I've been, I uh, breed and show dogs in addition to writing books, although that's not a business, that's sort of a hobby. And uh, I go to a dog show every, I think, uh, once or twice a year in Winston-Salem. And it is at like a fairgrounds place. It's a permanent fairgrounds, you know, like a state fair. And I can't, well, it's not the, the actual state fair, but it's some agricultural fair, but a very nice fair, uh, fairgrounds there. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been there. But, and uh, yeah, dad went to uh, Duke there just down the road a piece. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, interesting. Didn't know that. Small world, isn't it? Isn't it? That's the truth. And, uh, and then, oh yeah, last point. And then I spent like t almost 20 years in Charlotte doing some radio shows and TV and film and so forth. So yeah, we got a few things in common there. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's uh, not just the microphone and the studio setup, but you've got a voice for radio. <laughs> you, have, you have a face for TV, but you've got a voice for radio and that's a rare combination. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Got a chance to exercise both of those. And before we jump off of the John connection, because John and I spent perhaps entirely too long talking about cocktails, but I know he's a martini guy. What's your cocktail of choice? Well, I drink mostly Canadian uh, whiskey, like Crown Royal, just on the rocks. If I'm going to have a cocktail, it'll be an old fashioned. Mm, yes, uh, which, is, which is a, you know, basically whatever kind of whiskey you want, Angostura bitters, sugar, and then a uh, little fruit salad thrown in. 
Uh, and for my book, you know, I wrote the uh, that James Bond book about 10 years ago, the uh, carte blanche uh, licensed by the estate to do that. And I created a cocktail that James Bond drank in the uh, in the book, in, in, in what was Fleming's first- Casino Royale. First, Casino Royale. Yeah, he created the drink called the Vesper. The Vesper. And that was named after his temporary girlfriend. Bond had a lot of temporary girlfriends. And uh, so I made the, I created the carte blanche. And I'll tell you just a very fast story. I, uh, big launch of the book in, in London, of course, <clears throat> where much of the book was set and also, you know, iconic English hero. And, but the timing worked out to see the journalists. We met not for breakfast, but it was like 9 a.m., and the publishing company had the idea that they were going to serve the carte blanche cocktails <laughs> to the journalists. And uh, I would have one too. And to be, you know, amiable, I would, would sip a little bit at, this was nine in the morning. And to make it somewhat worse, the, <laughs> you know, the time zone, it was like two in the morning, my time right. from America. But uh, I, I think I remember some of my, my comments, but not too many of them, but the, the journalists loved it. But that, that was my, that's my cocktail story. Interesting note. If I may, I was aware of you, but I th I'm 99% sure that Carte Blanche was the first book of yours I picked up. Huh. Mm -hmm. So my apologies for not having read you sooner. Well, please, you and you and the rest of the world. So, <laughs> But the minute I read that book, it, it's still on my bookshelf. And I'm like, wow, who is this guy? And then from then on, I, well, yes. And I started following you and I read, I don't remember the one I read next, but there was a long gap. And then of course, jettisoning fast forward to now, I, I picked up the final twist. And the thing about this book, I'm gonna, I'm still wanting to jump into it, but it's so complex and so layered that I said, now this, here's a guy who has been writing if i do i remember this correctly 11 years old you've been writing or was that your first novel no that was i, I did start then it was of course a short story at that age but i've been publishing fiction now since i guess about 85 or 86 and full-time since guess when did i but i guess 89 so yeah i've been at it a long time about 45 novels about 80 80 and 90 short stories and uh a few other projects along the way. And one of my favorite things I discovered, and I'm way ahead uh, here on my notes, but that you're a country Western lyricist. Now, what I love about that is, I've got that right, correct? Yeah, yeah. I spent about half of my radio career, about a third of my radio career in country music, huh. which is hilarious because uh, I didn't start out that way. But now country and country Western, two entirely different things. Oh, absolutely. And I love the, and, and the, the biggest point I want to make is the thing I love about country music more than any other genre. And I love them all. I'm a big, I mean, you name it, I love it. But country music storytelling is the best. And there's very few genres that I can think of that tell well, a story quite like that. Well, let me, let me uh, tell you how that came about. Now I was a folk singer a long time ago, a terrible musician, had no, no voice, but I could write songs. I put songs together very well. I was a poet that came very naturally to me. And I, you know, the, you, to succeed in the music business and you, I suspect you might've had something to, that, that might be part of your background. You need, the whole package has to come together. You have to write kick-ass songs. You have to write the melodies. You have to play just like Doc Watson level quality you have to or, or Jimi Hendrix you know pick your genre and then you have to sing and you have to it all comes together and you have to captivate the audience well I didn't have 
that didn't come together for me, but I could write, I could write good songs. And that kind of fell, fell by the wayside. And then a few years ago, I wrote a book called XO, as in Hugs and Kisses. Right. That was a, let's see, that was a, I think that was a standalone. I think, yeah, I think that was a standalone book. Well, the, the theme was this, there was a country Western crossover singer, a la Taylor Swift, and, you know, people would dispute whether she's country Western, but now it all kind of comes, you know, it's all a big uh, mashup and, you know, pop, whatever. And uh, so she stalked and she made the mistake of sending out a fan letter to somebody, oh, you know, computer generated, of course, that said, you know, love ya, see my next show, XO. And this fellow uh, believed, as I've had stalkers, you know, they believe what they want to believe, that she was really in love with him. And so he descended into her life and made it absolutely uh, uh, miserable. And so what, what happened was that I said, you know, I can write songs. So I wrote for the book alone, about a dozen songs that were, you know, solid country-ish songs. And then they were put in the book, interspersed in the book. I think I referred to them in the book and then as in the appendix, I actually printed the lyrics to the songs. And the, the trick about them was they each had clues as to what was really going on. And he was reading the songs, and I hope the readers did too, to learn more about her life and her backstory because they were autobiographical. And therefore he could find out like where she was and uh, uh, what her frame of mind was and what boyfriend she may have had. And he deduced all this. Well, so there are the songs. And I'm thinking, what the hell? So I called up a friend of mine from Nashville, a pro music producer and said, let's, let's make an album. I'll give you the songs. You get the, get the musicians and the singer and we'll make the album, which we did. And it's, it's available. I mean, you can find it on Spotify, whatever else on Spotify. You know, there's, that's a whole different issue. Sure. But uh, it's on Spotify. I think Pandora, you can go to YouTube. Just type in Deaver, Your Shadow, and XO. And you'll see a, a, a video, a music video. There are a couple others on there, I think. And so that's where that came about. So that was my, uh, you know, kind of the, the full circle of music. And I was happy because I didn't have to perform. I didn't have to subject the audience to... Uh, the horrors of my singing or playing, <laughs> but they got my lyrics. And I'll tell you another story. Then we can actually get back to your questions. Um, one of the songs was nominated for a Hollywood Music Award. And it was a, that was a country Western song, kind of a, I don't even know who, who it would correspond to, kind of a, an upbeat, geez, well, there was a group that came to mind, I guess like nitty gritty dirt band, kind of okay. a fast moving, happy song. And so I was nominated for the award. No, the whole song was, you know, not just the lyrics. And it was probably the singer who was nominated. Well, who else was nominated? Kanye West, for whatever he had done. And so we were competing with each other. And then I, I thought, you know, I remember what he did with Taylor Swift, walking up and taking the Grammy away from her. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll go to the awards. And if he tries to take that uh, award away from me, I'm going to, he's not going to be able to do that. And then I saw a picture of him somehow, some magazine, he was, you know, like, I don't know, the Atlantic, well, it wouldn't be the Atlantic, but some vanity, maybe Vanity Fair. And he was without a shirt on. And that guy is like incredibly buff and cut. And so I thought, no, no, he can have the award. <laughs> I just love that. I, I love stories like that. And there's, I'm going to say it again, there's nothing like uh, country music. And, you know, I started out in soft rock, hard rock, pop, hot AC. And then one day I tripped into a guy hired me to do a country show and it just clicked. And then I, I had a, the number one country show in New York at one time. So 
No kidding. No. Which is no easy feat, by the way. Yeah, I'll say that's well, it, it's the genre has become so popular now. And just as one last aside on this, you know, the I knew him, but not very well. Steve Goodman, the, I was playing I, in, in Chicago, I was teaching music then. In fact, when he was around with John Prine, and he wrote a, a very clever song that has all the country western cliches in it. Yeah. It involves a pickup truck, a dog, a mother, <laughs> a divorce. And, you know, Apple a pie flag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was a, a great satiric lyricist. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and this triggered a thought in my head. There's a, there's a certain ingredient that happens that makes a song catch. And having been around that business, radio shows for 25 years, you, you learn very quickly that there's a very specific, it's a science, let's just figure it, there's a recipe, it doesn't just happen. And the same thing with a story, and your stories are indicative of this. There's, some, there's, there's this thing, I'm really in, intellectual by using the word thing, but I can't think of a better <laughs> word at the moment, an ingredient, if you will, that, that makes a book sizzle, that makes a book go, holy crap, this thing is good. And, and, it, and it forces you to turn the pages. And completely sincere, you are a master of that. Well, if I, if I may address that, because thank you, first of all, that is my goal. I wait after, uh, again, uh, 40 years of doing this, I wake up every morning, as I did this morning, as a matter of fact, for, uh, I just finished my novel, turn that in, working on a short story now, wake up every morning terrified that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disappoint the readers and the corollary of that is that the readers are everything to me. And I think every day, every time, not just sitting down at the computer, but throughout the day, I think, uh, is this idea going to work for them? Will this be boring? Will it be uh, contrived too far, too, too gruesome for the audience or too ungruesome? I've had some complaints that some of my books are not, not violent enough, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> and so I, but I, uh, but, and so we may get, you may have intended to get to this later, but you know, you can cut and paste or whatever. I'll just mention it now. I write my books according to a formula that I have, I have created, and I have no qualms about referring to it as a formula. Why? Because we do not get into airplanes or get into cars that have not been built according to a formula. I mean, it's, it's known as a blueprint in that case, but these are plans that have been uh, made uh, a long time, way, way, way before the final product is is created. And so, so that to the extent that when a test pilot gets in an airplane, he know nowadays, you know, back in the 1920s, it was different, but nowadays, he knows the plane's going to fly. It's like fine tuning at that point. Well, my books are the same, same way. Now, what is the, the formula for my books? Well, I uh, put that in the context um, of uh, defining what a story is to me, not to everybody else, but a story to me is a, a fictional narrative that involves living, breathing characters, fully fleshed out characters, good guys and bad guys and good girls and bad girls who confront increasing levels of conflict and increasingly difficult questions, which conflicts and questions are ultimately resolved at the end to the reader's satisfaction. Not necessarily, they don't have to be happy endings by any means. I mean, you could debate whether Breaking Bad had a happy ending or, or not, but it was a satisfying ending. And that's, so in my books, everything has to fall into that formula. Why? Well, for one thing, it's the kind of book I like to read. And I am a reader in addition to being a, uh, an author. And, and practically, what does that mean? So a Deaver book takes place over about two days, three at the most. 
there are, are lots of internal surprises, reversals. You know, that we'll learn at the end of chapter four that the cop we thought was a hero is actually a bad guy. And there are a lot of facts about different topics. My book, The Cutting Edge, was about the diamond trade. My book, The Broken Window, was about data mining. My book, The Final Twist, was about politics and corporate incursion into, into government. And then there's a surprise ending, followed by a surprise ending, followed by a surprise ending, because I have to have lots of those twists and, uh, and, and turns, because I think readers like that. So that's a, that, that in a way, to the extent I've been uh, successful, it's because readers become, become consumed with the story and read it quickly, I hope, and then close the book. And uh, ideally, they have a little bit left over to think about, such as the, that geopolitical thing I mentioned about the politics and corporation. But basically, I want it to be a good time, a roller coaster, and then, then pick up my next one. <laughs> wow. Okay. That right there is the soundbite of the show. And Jeffrey, I got to tell you something. A couple things that popped into my head and in no particular order. And I was grinning because there, it happened. I can think of three specific things in my head right now. There's probably four where I got to got to a chapter at the end. And I'm like, I literally laughed out loud because, oh, my God, I'm like, he got me because I thought it was going this way. Chugga, 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 chugga. And it was this way or that person was this. And those moments are brilliant. That is worth the price of admission right there. Yep, That's what I aim for. And the second thing is, and it happened this morning on my morning walk with my dog, Dexter. I was, you know, I start very early in the day and I start thinking about, you know, I, I start thinking about what to talk to you about and what to, you know, things that have affected me in the story. And this is the key. One thing I walked away learning and I'm like, and I asked myself this, okay, you have these asides from the father Ashton that are teaching the kids about survival techniques. And I caught myself really getting uh, caught up in them when I read them and then hoping to retain them as I went. And this morning as I was walking, I'm like, wow, okay, not only did I have a robust, enjoyable time, but I, I took away some survival techniques that I hope to integrate into my life. And then I had my other voice say, well, you know, are those actually true? And I'm like, of course they are. And then I had to research them. And of course they are indeed true. So that's a whole lot of words, Jeff, to say, that's just one of the greatest added benefits of reading one of your books is you're not just getting entertained. You're getting enlightened and or educated. Well, well, thank you, David, so much. And now it occurs to me, all you have to do is, you know, put on the, the news or uh, pick up a newspaper and see that what's going on uh, in Europe right now, we may very well need those survival techniques. I certainly hope not, but may find a whole new market out there. People buying the books to see, uh, you know, just to stay alive in this crazy world. Yeah, my mind goes to J uh, Jack Carr, who is uh, quite a survivalist and uh, a renegade writer. And, you know, I, I pick up a lot of stuff from his books as well. I want to ask this Back to your formula, which I absolutely love. That's, this is going to be the best, best part of the whole show. In that formula, and it, and it makes so much sense, it's not just, uh, what, what is it that triggered, your th uh, that triggered my thinking? Was the way that you flesh out the characters, oh, here you go, and you force them to 
make a decision and or evolve themselves into their situation. And it's not just a, oh my gosh, so-and-so happened and then it was terrible. No, but you force them into situations or, or they are forced into situations where they have to survive and learn a lesson, which is, you know, kind of complex. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, true. They have to do that or they have to die because that happens occasionally too. Interesting you mentioned the, the characters. I have always been a plot-driven author. I can talk about my preparation process, all the, you know, creating that blueprint. That's the outline. I, I, I'm an outliner and I, I, I probably am the most, well, on the negative side, obsessive compulsive that puts a little, you know, diagnostic and statistics manual take on it going in one direction. The other thing is just devoted to outlining. And I, I certainly, I, I certainly am that, and the the plots are very carefully constructed. But I heard something on NPR not too long ago. I, well, I shouldn't say not too long ago. It was before I wrote the Never Game, the first in the Coulter Shaw series. And it, I think this was a neurolinguist or a neurologist or someone who said said this, and it was very important. Uh, she said that the part of our brain that creates connections with the people in our, the real people in our lives, our you know, our our lovers, our husbands, wives. Our, our partners, our children, our parents, our good friends, and the bad guys, you know, the guy who cuts you off on the highway, that, that, that uh, evil boss, the part of the brain that creates this emotional feeling within us is the same part of the brain that creates a connection with fictional characters. There's, there's no difference. So the more realistic and fleshed out, as I say, the characters are in your book, the more readers are going to respond to them. And therefore, when you put them in peril, the, the readers are going to follow you. They're going to be sitting on the edge of their seat. If you create a villain that has, uh, for instance, my hairstyle, a ponytail, and a black leather jacket, well, that's the villain. We know that right away. That's the thug villain. Or you create a guy who's head of a pharmaceutical company or an oil company, that's the villain right away. <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't work. You've got to create backstories for all of those characters, even the the bald ponytail thug, we need to care about him. You know, the villains are the heroes of their own stories. So we have to we have to, to do that. So when you mention the characters, that's that's a very important point. So the, the, the plots are absolutely important vital. But I have increased uh the visibility and the depth of my characters over the last four, probably four or five uh, books. You know, does this stuff result in better sales? I don't, I don't know that that's not data that's available, but I know in my, well, in my heart and in my, my, my brain, my analytical left side brain, that, that readers are responding to those characters better than they would if I had just glossed over them. Yes, because you, we, you, one, does the reader care about them They're even in their brokenness and, or their devilish, devilishness, you, you you create something that makes us care about them in, in some form or another. So they're not cookie cutter bad guys, you know? Oh, well, he's, he's a bad guy. He's got a knife and a gun. He's going to hurt somebody. Oh yeah. Oh dear. Well, there was a scene in the final twist. And because there are so many twists there, I think, I think Kirkus, one of the reviews said it was a complimentary re review, but it said, there are so many twists. We can't tell what the final one is, uh, <laughs> but in fact, you can, because it's on the last page. And that was a, you know, actually maybe the most important twist of the book, but there was a, a scene there where there's a good guy and a bad guy fighting. And the bad guy is just utterly uh, reprehensible. And the good guy prevails. And uh, the bad guy had a, an associate 
And the associate, when he or she learns of the death, is, I can't say mortified, but taken aback. And you can see in their face that they're diminished now because this utterly reprehensible person has, has gone. They've left that life now. So that's the kind of connection uh, that I, I like to create. A mission accomplished. By the way, and, and you, you stole the line from me because I was just, my very next thing I was going to say, I've talked to several people on this show. I know that John has mentioned this. I know Meg Gardner, mutual friend, has mentioned this. Meg said that there's no, I think I'm going to see, I'm pretty close to quoting this. No one on the planet who crafts a more elaborate, deeper outline than Jeffrey Deaver. And then I heard either her or someone else said, you may write up to a hundred page outline for any particular book. Is that right? Well, that is true. And I do outline more than any author uh, around the world that I've ever, I've ever uh, met largely because my books take place over that short period of time. There are three subplots and they intersect, they come together and then they, they depart, they come together again. That requires a lot of choreography, a lot of examination of the time. And the, the, other, the other thing about outlining is, is this, and I'm, I'm an advocate when I, I teach courses in writing and I tell my students that again, this is writing subjective, you know, whatever works for you works. However, if you're, if you're inexperienced or you've never written before, it's very, very helpful and efficient to know where you're going to go. Joyce Carol Oates said, you can't write the first sentence until you know what the last sentence is. And I, I firmly believe in that. It doesn't have to be the exact, you know, last sentence, but, you know, you have to know basically what the ending will be. And what, what happens often is that a writer, well, it could be a, an experienced writer, more often it's an inexperienced writer, gets a great idea. And you know what, what I mean by set piece, a really bang up, it, it could be like a, a big car chase, a big assassination attempt, or it could be something emotional, like a big confrontation between two, two lovers. And, and that's the opening scene. And in my case, I you know, would write that down, put it up on a bulletin board, and then work on the outline. Well, what happens though, is that somebody gets a good idea like that and they sit down and they're so excited that they, they bang out that first chapter in hours or a day at the most, you know, two, 3,000 words, just bang, out it comes. It's, it's, it's uh, hardly any effort at all. And then they keep going, the second chapter and the third chapter, you know, now we're up to 60, 70, 80, 100 words, 100 pages, and then things slow down a little bit. And yeah. then like it, maybe let's call it 225 pages, you, you hit that brick wall, you stop. You have no idea where you're going to go. You don't know what the middle is. You have no ending and you keep staring at it and you think, think, think. And all you can think of is like a cliched middle, you know, scenes like we've never seen before, right? I'm being sardonic now. Sure. Uh, like the captain has a big fight with the hero detective and takes his gun and badge away. You know, how many times have we seen that? Like 50,000 times. Right. Um, so we, 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 then we look at the ending and there's no ending. You, you have to bring the villain who we haven't met yet. He just comes out of left field. And uh, so now you've got, and remember, our job is to give readers, the readers are our gods. We cannot give them anything less than a perfect emotional experience. Right. So you've done that. You spent your six, who knows, maybe three months, four months creating all that. And you're confronted with two choices. One is the, and you're going to guess, my take on this, the morally cowardly, intellectually dishonest approach, and put in that 
that bad middle and put on the, the cliched ending and, and send it off to your readers. Or you can do, okay, you know, this is coming, the intellectually honest, the, the morally upright, courageous thing and throw out every damn word, every single page, get rid of it, dump it and start something, uh, start something new. Because if you can create a good set piece beginning for a bad novel, think of the great set piece beginning you can make for a good novel. Now, okay, let's say we turn to my case mm -hmm. and I have that a little yellow post-it note that says brilliant set piece chapter. That's all it says. I know what it is in my head. It goes in the upper, I guess, I don't know how the cameras work in this, but it's going in my upper left-hand corner. Okay. And then I start filling in. I take post-it notes and I think this is the outline process. And I think, okay, I don't have to go serially. I can jump into the middle. I think, I think we need a body in the middle. That'll be good. And I think the villain down here, I don't know where the villain's coming from, but okay, here's the villain. And he is uh, defeated by the, by the, let's say, the detective's assistant. That's kind of a twist at the end. The detective doesn't get it. The detective's assistant gets the bad guy. And I start filling in these post-it notes. And now it's where I'm a week into this, two weeks into it. And I'm staring at that. And this is where I hit the block. This is where I realized that the middle is just garbage and there's no ending. So what do I do? I wad up, you know, five cents worth of post-it notes, throw them out and start over again. What have I wasted a week or 10 days? Outlining is just so much more efficient and you don't, you don't waste time. And the, the other thing about outlining is, is this. Writing is hard. Writing is physically demanding, you know, sitting for a while, uh, you get fidgety, but you have to do it. I mean, I stand sometimes, you have to be in the same position, but it, it's, it, it's psychologically, intellectually, and physically uh, demanding. So my theory is, let's make it as easy on our, ourselves as writers as we can. And go. one of the easy things, one of the things that makes it easier is to be able to, to jump around in the outline and write a scene that you feel like writing. Now, I, you know, I, I can't see too, well, it's a sunny day. It's a beautiful sunny day here and in North Carolina. And I'm actually working on a, a long extended short story right now. And because it's a nice day, the dogs will be out in the backyard. I may not feel like killing somebody in my story. <laughs> and, because, and that's actually, to be serious about it, that's where I am in this, this story I'm working on. I can, I can, you know, save those for, you know, gloomy days or when I'm irritated with politics or something like that. But see, I can jump around and that makes it much, uh, uh, much easier. And so the, but, you know, the world is divided into plotters, that's outliners and pantsers, as in seat of the pants. And, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin doesn't outline Game of Thrones. Stephen King doesn't, doesn't outline. And, you know, the, I think we cannot <clears throat> dispute the fact that they're uh, successful and create an emotional response with uh, readers. But I think, some people's minds can do that automatically. Mine doesn't. I'm very scattered. I jump around a lot. And it, it, I, to, to tell a coherent story, I need, I need that process of moving things around, looking at them. I don't know if you know the concept heuristics, H-E-U-R-E-I-S-T-I-C. I've spelled it wrong, but you get the idea. And that's the process of, pro it's kind of an engineering process. It's a problem solving process that um, means trial and error. And that's you finally come to a solution by just trying things out. And that's how the outline process works. If I tried to do that in a novel, it would be a nightmare. I'd have to throw out or rewrite maybe hundreds, at least dozens, maybe hundreds of, uh, hundreds of, uh, of pages. Now in the outline if, outline, if I say, you know, in, in chapter two, I really need to introduce a principal player 
And in the outline, I write new principal player on the post-it note and stick it in there. If I've, if I've written half the book, that means I have to go back and rewrite that 400 pages. And that's no fun. Jeff, that was a great, great explanation. My brain was spinning at hyperspeed. <laughs> so I want to see if I can recount all the questions I had. First of all, let's see, where do I go? I'm working on my 10th self-published novel, or my 10th novel. I, I, I told myself I was going to learn the system before I ever submitted to anybody, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and self-publishing would give me the knowledge of how to build the machine. And I started way back with my very first one, maybe 2002. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to learn every little step about how the system worked. Do I have what it takes? Blah, blah, blah. I've always been kind of that way. I want to prove it before I, you know, show it. So I'm working on this 10th book. And it's so funny, I started this book, and, and this is, feels like a little bit of therapy, so bear with me, but I'll make it very quick. <laughs> Inside of COVID, like in the thick of COVID, and I have this great idea, for, I have this idea for a book, and I start writing the book, and I'm loving it, and I'm like, and I'm just cranking on it, because it indicative of the time it was taking a particular person high in the structure of government, we'll say, without, mm -hmm. I don't want to give him any time on the show. Gotcha. But I, I love the I uh, love the story, and it was really cranking. Set it aside, lot it up. I've decided to go this other way. But I, so I'm going full full steam here, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure that I'm superlatively interested in that particular story for the next one that I'm going to really do. So I'm going to like test the waters over here. So borrowing some of your insights there, I'm just like, you know, I'm pulling out the gun, and I'm like, bam! I hope I hit something. Bam! I hope I hit something. <laughs> you know. I realized, and this is a process of about nine months of, of this very thing. And I'm like, at the, at nine months, I'm like, I don't like the way this thing is going. And I should have planned accordingly and really laid it out. So in the last week or so, I've really kind of taken some of your insights without knowing it, having now just met you and said, man, it's way better to try to f make this trip across the country if I have a map so that I kind of know where I'm gonna go. I know where I'm gonna end up, okay, easy. But do I wanna use interstates or back roads? Do I wanna be scenic or just get there faster? I'm a big fan of that. And I just read a book recently, uh, a download book, something about take your pants off and it had to do with, <laughs> and, and the whole thing is take your pants off, stop being a pantser and being a plotter and how to break down that system very easy. And it's a brilliant little book. I'd love to impress you by telling you the author, but I can't at this particular moment because I'm too spinning in my head. But I talk to people who go, oh no, dude, I just sit down, the inspiration washes over me and I just go. So what happens when you hit that dreaded second act, middle of the book, yeah. and you're not sure where to go? Yeah, you know? and that's, you know, there's, there is something to be said, uh, and in your particular case, you know, there's no reason why you can't outline what you've got and put that the bullet points in front of you now and then just consider that well what do i do what do i do from here i i've done that i mean i've outlined books i've written my earlier books to see what i've done wrong and how i could have improved them and several of them i've actually rewritten according and published again according to the uh, what my results of the uh, outlining so you can certainly do that and again you know one thing i should say people have been concerned that uh, the, the question is, so where's the creativity? You know, where this sounds so analytical, but you have to understand that that a, a work of art, I'm going to include art in the lowercase, you know, generic sense here, art is anything created. 
Sure. Uh, you have a creator, maybe a musician, maybe a, a painter, maybe a, a writer. It's something that's um, created for an audience. And you, your, your mind goes into an entire, as you know, as an author, your mind goes into an entirely different place. And that cre creativity embraces both structure and form and the, uh, the, the content. I just wrote a, a short story for Amazon Original Stories, and I, I published there in addition to the traditionally published books. Oh, and you do? About, you know, and it's a, it's a short story. I'm not going to give anything away, but a killer leaves clues in the forms of poems. And they're, they're legitimate poems. That are, they're real poems that I've written. I mean, they, they scan and they have the rhythm and rhyme and so forth. And the clues are in there. A, a poem is a perfect example. There's the structure of the poem. And I don't like, you know, uh, free verse. I don't like just throwing things out. Just because you have uneven lines doesn't make it a poem. You need, there has to be that, that brilliant structure to it. The Robert Frost structure, the T.S. Eliot structure. And, uh, but then there's the meaning, what, what the poems mean as well. Well, it's the same for us. So I, I look at the um, outline as the structure, and then I, I get into the I get into the 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 content, the uh, the substance of it. I mean, you can picture uh, Beethoven, my favorite classical slash romantic era composer, who is writing his symphonies. I don't know whether it's a pantser or a plotter, but I suspect that at one point he had those huge manuscript sheets in front of him, and he wrote down somewhere, "Put adagio here." He doesn't know what the adagio will be, mm -hmm. but he says, put adagio here or put the andante mov movement here. And then he goes on and does other things. And then he thinks about it for a while. And then he writes the, the, the movement. He knows where it's going to go. He knows that it's a, an adagio, a nice slow piece, but he, that's when the creativity comes in. So an outline does not negate creativity by any means. And in fact, when you think about the artist, now I'm talking capital A, and let's talk about Beethoven or uh, Rembrandt or Da Vinci, you know, they are looking at the, the entirety of what they're creating and they produced on time for a commission according to a structure and form that the audience wanted. Mm. You know, why should a writer look at that any differently? I mean, we're business people. I make my living writing. I've always made my living for writing. I've never written anything. Oh, I mean, aside from like introductions and and, you know, maybe a little analysis for a, a, a literary magazine or something like that, that I do gratis, but everything else I've written is for, uh, is for money. It's a, it's a job, of course. And so that means I have to be very attuned to the market. And just like Rembrandt and Beethoven and Jackson Pollock uh, or Picasso and, and so on. So, and if that wasn't a high horse answer to a simple question, David, I don't know what was. Forgot the question. <laughs> no, no, no. A couple of things come to my mind and it makes me wonder, do you see, do you feel or see a real big separation between thriller and mystery? I've always wondered that because like, I know, for instance, you served as president of the mystery uh, writers of America and in, in your books, in my world, uh, in my mind are really classically thriller. So mm -hmm. I, I've often wondered, do you think there's any really big differentiation between those two or do they kind of meld together sure yeah there is a distinction and uh, of course it's artificial like you know drawing dichotomies always are but i think in general it holds up and and by mystery i'm going to refer to the classic dashiell hammond the uh, pd james uh, dorothy l sayers 
Agatha Christie and the, the, the mystery that they write, which I love. That's what got me started reading and writing in the first place. A mystery answers the question, you know, what happened in the past? The, who killed the, 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 the uh, priest in the back of the rectory, you know, and, and then the detective solves that. And it's an intellectual puzzle. And there may be some foreboding of risk but, you know, we pretty much know that Hercule Poirot is going to survive the end of the story and that the people he's talking to might, you know, maybe they're imperiled to some extent. But really, the, the reader wants to know the big uh, takeaway is what happened? A thriller simply asks the question, what's going to happen? Right. That is what I'm that fits my model much better for the drive, the roller coaster element. So I introduce, well, in every chapter, and probably more often than that, if I can, these uh, these questions and conflicts that I was uh, talking about. How is so-and-so going to get out of this? this? The old Saturday afternoon matinee yeah. uh, uh, show movies that were, that would, they were serialized. Now that was a little before my time. I really don't remember them, but for, for the, the listeners out there now at a time in the, probably the 1930s and forties and it, somewhat into the fifties when I, I was born in 1950. So I have a little memory of this. You'd go to see a movie on Saturday and it would end on a cliffhanger. Yeah. And then you'd have to come back yeah. the next Saturday. I mean, a very clever idea to get people to uh, come back. It was always the matinees, you know, you, you'd go to the the feature film in the evenings and uh, but but the, uh, the primarily for kids but you know a lot of uh, and they were they, you know mostly men in the audience they were they were they were westerns they were sci-fi movies some crime but you know it would end on a end on that high note and that's what i that's what i like that's what i i do end on that high note and then resolve the uh, question at the end of the chapter but you well you have to do it pretty soon that's that's a judgment if you, you know, you leap right into the next chapter, you're going to diminish the surprise. If you wait three chapters to resolve the conflict, readers are going to get mad. So, you know, maybe put a chapter in between and then resolve it right after that. If you're going to end a chapter in which your main character or the character we love most in the book is imperiled, maybe that's a good time to just to jump right to the next chapter and save them. Because um, if you put another chapter in between, they're not going to read it. They're just <laughs> going to skim forward. And, you know, every word counts in a book. You can't have any filler at all. Jeff, you realize you're giving, this is like a classroom in a show. David, you'll get my bill. Don't worry. But what I was going to say about the final twist is the fact that you really kind of do both of those things. You, yeah. you have oh, yeah. this, yeah, you have this thread of mystery going, what happened to Ashton? Why did that happen? And then you have the thriller moments of dun, 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 oh, dun, 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 oh. And as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about that, my wife and I have gotten turned on to this show recently called Killing Eve, which is mm. pretty, pretty entertaining. And I have a question for you, doctor, as I get on your couch. Is the fact that I'm starting to call scenes, I'll lit, we'll be watching the scene, and I literally, my wife has gotten to where she actually appreciates it now. She kind of first wanted to, don't ruin it for me, but now she, she appreciates it because she's learning something. I'm like, okay, wait, this is going to happen right now. Jeffrey, it happens, it, it happens every time. So here's my question, doctor, as I lay back and ask for a <laughs> tissue. How do you feel about that? Okay, please keep going. 
How, what makes you feel drawn to that, David? What do you think it's good that I'm calling those? Do you think, I think because I'm so hyper analytical, do you think that it's good that I'm calling it because I'm understanding story better all the time and it's just kind of my own personal confirmation? Or, doctor, do you think that it's, there's it's so riddled with cliche that I'm anticipating the cliche. And if that is the case, then I feel like a chump because is my mind thinking in cliche? Well, I, I thought the question was going to be about marriage counseling. because <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I've watched some things with, with my partner and she, she says, stop that. And, and I don't do anything except body language suggests that I know what's coming next. And so it's, I guess, an answer to your question, uh, a broader answer, let me put it this way, a broader answer is that when we, you know, dip our toe into this business of creating any kind of story, you know, we know crime, I, I assume yours are, are crime-oriented uh, mm -hmm. novels, there is some, you lose some things. You lose a certain naivety about enjoying, that allows you to enjoy shows on the air. And the other thing I've found is that I get, I'm, I'm extremely critical and i i will i will just stop watching a series if something becomes not credible to me and i'll give you an example and i don't want to mention any you know director's names or the movie's name but there was a one scene where in this film i thought it was an overrated film in general i, I didn't think that the it was too long for one thing no movie should be more than like an hour and i i don't know maybe an hour and a half but anyway it was too long the plot was incomprehensible to follow, uh, a lot of set pieces. But there was one scene where this very, very sophisticated killer, a hitman, did something stupid that, and that resulted in his, in his death. And the first thing I thought was, that took the character away from me completely. I didn't believe in the character because this hitman would not have done that. He would not have left the gun outside the bathroom door and maybe I've just given something away. But if he's such a such a brilliant hitman, yeah. then why would he do that? Why did he do that? Because the scriptwriter needed a convenient uh, way to eliminate him, whereas it could have been easily handled by having the, the character who came into the house and saw the gun there and took it and killed him. Just reach up in the cupboard and get a gun of his own that was hidden there. <laughs> and, and and shoot him. But it's things like that that will take me right out of the, you know, right out of the, uh, the story. And you, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You have to, you have to be with the, uh, the characters in the story all the time. The one thing that did not, did not fail to hit the mark, every show of every season was Breaking Bad. Yeah. Uh, I was with every single character. At every point, there was humor, Humor kind of risks, you know, fourth wall-ish kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, taking you out of the story, but um, never there. That That's kind of my model for good storytelling. And uh, I mean, there, you know, this is true about books as well. There are scenes in books that you can, you can see coming and you can see that, oh, they needed to fill this in. Like I, I was reading a book once and two characters are talking and the, the one says, it's kind of out of the blue. And one who's the detective, it's an amateur private eye kind of person, says to the other, boy, don't you love that uh, singing in the rain movie? It wasn't that, but something where the scene where he, you know, he slides down the staircase and, and keeps dancing with the umbrella 
And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, isn't that great? I just love that scene. Well, of course, the, the point of that was to prove that the fellow who the questionee had not seen the movie as he claimed he had as an alibi. Well, I mean, I read that and right away, I knew what it, I knew who the, who the, the bad guy was. And, you know, we need, we need things like that. And I am guilty of that too. You know, I have written I, 45 novels, you know, yeah. all those stories. I have, I, I've pushed the envelope. I've made those, those mistakes. You can't please everybody. I try to eliminate as many of them as possible in my course. I, I, I have a number of rules for my uh, students to follow again, if they want to take my approach to it. And one of the most important rules is called the give me a break rule. And anytime a, a, a reader uh, reads a passage or sees something in a movie and says, ah, oh, give me a break, you know, oh, please give me a break. Then that, that's a big mistake. That's taking them out of the, out, out of the story. And, you know, we can't do that. And I Let's say, say, read your, read your, read your book over and over and over again and say, are there any, give me a break moments here. And, uh, you know, like a cell phone, the battery going, well, no, no, right. uh, yes. Cell phone batteries go. Of course they do. Yes, there are places where there's no signal, but you can't use that. I'm sorry. What you have to do is have your bad guy, you know, paraglide past a cell tower and toss in a little electronic device that blocks the signal for that area. Could that happen? No, of course not. But it, but it but it's more credible in a book than the coincidence of your cell phone going off, and readers will respect that. And they don't respect the, you know, they don't respect laziness in anything. Okay. Hold on a second. Now, I, I got a, I got a confession to make. My brain is still, I've heard everything you've said. My brain is still sitting back here a little bit wondering what the hell was that movie that you referenced that you said you wouldn't say. Not out of my name. I'm not coming out of my mouth, but if I after, guess it, after I see, after I see that, that recording button go off, uh, then we can, uh, then we okay. can talk about it. I've all, I think readers, uh, you know, your listeners will probably already know. I think I know I'm going to make a note to myself here. I got to write it down or I'll forget. Okay. okay. Because I, I, I got to know this. I don't know why. Because I, I mean, I work in, I work in Hollywood too. And I, I don't, you know, just want to yes. make sure I'm not telling stories out of school. So. I get it. You don't want to. Yeah. What's the old saying? I may, well, I may want to do a really big movie deal at some point. So from your lips to God's ears. Hey, quick question. As Grandmaster, you've been named Grandmaster of the Mystery Writers of America. And it begged a question. Do you have a crown or a ring, maybe a bejeweled <laughs> staff or something? No, no, sadly, I don't. I don't have a jeweled staff and I don't have a personal staff either, which I would certainly, uh, people don't, people don't wait on you. I have to say it was an incredible honor. I, it's just un, un, unbelievable. I mean, people in this, this include uh, like Agatha Christie, for instance, and Stanley Elkins and some of the, the, the great writers going back to the forties and forties and fifties. And I, I just don't know. I had no way to respond to that. I mean, it was just so so wonderful. Well, I mean, I gave a little, gave a speech, of course, and thanked them from the bottom of my heart. But it was it, it was just such a, a wonderful thing to to have happen. Yeah, God, this is the part of the geek of me, and and it's funny. I mean, y you can't get to where I have gotten and had some of the su success I had without being just a friggin' geek and being okay with that. And it always it brings up questions like this and people will go, why did you ask that? But I'm going to ask anyway. I mean, what is it like? What does it feel like to be in that kind of arena with those kinds of names and knowing, you know, another thing I thought about along that same line, being able to be 
what is it? Did I 150 countries translated into 25 languages? When I read things like that, I'm like, do you ever wake up, Jeff, every once in a while and go, yeah, that's me. <sighs> well, everything, everything you you mentioned there, David, and other things, and other things that I've been awards I've gotten. I've gotten a three lifetime achievement awards from various organizations, and and the you know the the geographic spread of of my books, it it simply validates my philosophy, which is that we authors have to do this for the readers, which I'm belaboring. I've said that said that before, but it's a validation that I think that attitude is is the right one. I. All I've ever wanted to do is pay my bills writing. I mean, I, I have, I, I could, you know, this is a, this is like a forty-year-old house. It needs work. It needs painting. Uh, it's I don't have a mansion. I, you know, it's it's fine with me. I drive a Chevrolet and a Nissan. That I'm honored. I have two vehicles. I mean, I think that's wonderful. But but the point is that I've been able to do that. I've had the just the the joy of for the last forty years or so being able to uh, tell stories. Uh, for a living, and those are stories that seem to seem to create in in readers this emotional high for a, for a while. You know, it goes away. Then I, I think maybe one of the most complimentary things I've ever had happen to me is at a signing, and this has happened several times. Um, readers will come up and get their get their book signed, and then they're, they're they kind of glower at me and say, "Well, we're not." We're not really happy about something, Jeff, and I, and I like I like to hear readers' response. I mean, I, I've 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 tuned I've changed my direction occasionally, based on on you know a number of readers' reactions. But what they say is that I, you don't write often enough. You know, I do a book a year, about six short stories a year, but I I can't. That's well, I actually the last year I wrote two books: the Final Twist and the Midnight Lock, my Lincoln Rhyme book that's just out now. And that was largely because of COVID. I mean, I've always uh, sat in a dark room and, and written for like eight hours a day. That's always happened. COVID didn't change that. But COVID did take away the other things I did. And that's the three months of book touring. So I spent that um, time on, we have a little battery issue. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. Okay, we good there? Okay. Oh, yeah, good. yeah. Okay. Yeah, just a battery issue. And uh, so I, I spent that time... Uh, writing but so this year two books and now that i'm getting back into touring there will be uh, that will probably not happen again i and at this age you know it is kind of it is kind of tiring so a book a year about six short stories and i you know I, I can't really do more than that but what a what a compliment that was they want more of what i'm doing so yeah uh, and and it always begs the question if, if i'm gonna let, bear with me a second it begs this question if you're doing Let's just use it a book a year, 12 months, and you're going to spend, let's say, six to eight months in research, which I, th I either picked that up or deduced myself. That means you're crafting the book somewhere between three and six months. So if you're doing eight hours a day, and do you really write in the dark question, side question? If that's the case, it's kind of hard to cram two books in if you're trying to do touring as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I won't. I, I probably won't be doing that again. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I tell my students is that you have to take your time. You have to make sure the product is the best it can be. And then you have to make sure it's placed the way you want it to be. And, uh, and I'll tell you, dude, I have nothing against self-publishing at all. I, 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 Shakespeare's 
portfolios were self-published. There was no publisher for those. He performed them. But so there's no stigma attached uh, to it at all. But one thing I found uh, among my students is that they write really good books and they just don't take the time to get it to an agent or a traditional publisher. And whereas if they did, I know it's disappointing, it's frustrating, but if they just kept at it, you know, they might have that venue if they, they chose that. I mean, some people like self and hybrid publishing for the control and, you know, the, the increased income, potentially increased income. That's, that's perfectly fine. But if they want to be traditionally published and they say, I've been at it for four months and I, I, nobody's looking at me. Well, I'm sorry. It took me like three years to get my first novel published. So that's... Uh, three that's, years? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. I was working full time, and yeah. uh, it, it also wasn't very good. There was that, but I, but I finally got it in, in good enough shape. And oh no, actually, I put that aside. Wrote another one, then it, then that one got published. But you know, it it, it takes time. It takes time, and that's just the the nature of the business. But I'll, I'll, I should mention this for my schedule: it's eight months of outlining and research. I do that at the same time. Got so it's, it's getting the book. It's not just research and it's outlining. Then I, I can write the book, and you know. In, in two months, because I know where it's going to go. That's sure. the problem. A lot of the delay, uh, the length in writing is, is because you hit that chapter six and you don't know what's going to be in it. And you have to ponder that for a while or you write it. And then you think, oh, now I've got to go back and rewrite chapter two. And some people like that. Again, it's not, not for me, but some people are fine with that. It's just that that takes up the bulk of the time. So most authors I know can you know, get a, a, a crime novel out in nine months. Yeah. Nine or ten minutes. It's it's not that hard to do a you know one about minor about a hundred thousand words maybe give or take between ninety five and one hundred and five, and which I think is a good length for a, a crime novel. And uh, so then that's done. And in answer to your question, yes, I I do uh, touch type, and if I since my camera is in the the computer, I can't. I don't know if this is going to work, uh -huh. but I, I can't turn my camera down to show you the keyboard. But if if it's possible to see that. Oh yeah, I get that. All right. Well, see the the letters on the keys are missing. Yeah. And is, some is that of because them, you've just worn them out? Yeah, I've worn them out. And if you see the those things that look like bits of tape, let's yeah. see if I can to there. show you the center point. Yeah, huh? I got it. Because I've worn the points off the bumps off the uh, F and the J keys. Here's what I do. My hand, I, I lay my hands down. I just know intuitively where it falls on that particular keyboard because I spend so much time on this friggin' keyboard. But okay, maybe I did notice they were there. Okay, now that I'm feeling them, but I guess I just never consciously. Never mind. I'm taking up time, and we are eating into time. And I still have a couple things to do. How are we on your time? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Okay, cool. Real quick thing I want to mention, by the way, speaking of turning the camera around, so I'm looking at this list of your novel. Oh, wait, oh, look, there's a back too. Holy balls. We got Lincoln Ryan, we got Coulter Shaw, Catherine Dance, The Rune Series, John Pelham. Do you create multiple series because you have a particular guy in mind? We'll use guy as a generic. And oh, yeah, the lawyer's going to be that guy. And then, da, 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 da. And then you tire of that particular particular guy and you go, oh, I want to pull in Catherine. Da, 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 da. And I mean, do you do that for breadth of range? Do you do that because you, is it attention span? Do you just go, oh, I have so many different stories? And because look, when I look at this list, you got, you got oodles of Lincoln, 
You, you got three with Coulter. I know a fourth is coming here in uh, November. And then you got, you know, there's a question in there somewhere. In answer, no, no, I've got, I've got the, I've got the question, David. And uh, the answer is it depends on the, the content, the, the, what I think is a good idea, a compelling idea to write about. And that's one thing it depends on. The other thing it depends on is the market. Now, I think in general, series are better for readers because readers want to spend time with the characters they like. I know I did. James Bond, Travis McGee, Dashiell Hammett wrote the Sam Spade series. And then like Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, I, I was a geek as well. I like, I like some fantasy. And that was not really, you can kind of, there were three books in the trilogy. You can kind of look at it as a series. And so I, that's my, my goal to create the series, but there are some topics that simply would not fall into a series book. For instance, my book, A Garden of Beasts set in Berlin in 1936, that's a historical book that was by uh, nature, a standalone. My book, The October List, that's a book that goes backwards. We open with chap page one is chapter 36, and then we progress backward in time. So chapter one is on page I don't know, 200 or something like that, 250. Um, and so that had to be a standalone. Now, as far as the Lincoln, Coulter, and Catherine go, that simply is based on, on, on sales, on, on the market. People love Lincoln Rhyme books. Coulter Shaw is, I've decided to create a, a good market for Coulter Shaw. So he is going to be here I've, uh, continuing. I've written a number of short stories for him too. And he's, he's well-received. People, people do enjoy him. Uh, and he's this is of, of Lincoln. He's not going to, they're not going to step on each other's sales. Catherine Dance, I loved, but readers didn't. Many readers are very, very loyal to her, but they didn't want her. I think maybe because she's a linguist, she's a, kinetic, a body language expert and, and linguist, and uh, she pulls out a gun and she shoots people. But I think it wasn't that, and they move, the books move very quickly, but I think that just didn't have the dynamics that, that, that readers like. Now, she will come back. I have a, a books outlined, and that that may be a smaller second book a year, written primarily for the readers who want her. So that so you know, I look at the market and look at the look at the story idea and then assign it. But I will continue to write Lincoln Rhyme and Coulter Shaw forever. Catherine will come back. I have a standalone I just finished. That could not be a series, and so that will be in the mix somewhere. Well, it, it it's not going to be a series. Correct me if I'm wrong, unless it does tremendously well or your agent says, hey, wait. In which case it will be welcome to number one in the series on the cover. Uh, that's what <laughs> Did I mention I'm a business person? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Hey, little inside scoop. Uh, is my math correct? You, Lincoln Rhyme, practically every year, well, you skipped a couple here and there beginning in 97 which by the way we gotta we can't have a conversation with mr deaver and not talk about the bone collector love the well, movie by the way sure. i have no i have written a book a year um, no well, what i mean is for lincoln I've, yeah oh i jumped yeah i've interspersed those there's not been i've done the standalones uh, as well so i did see something somewhere i gotta mention this <clears throat> about somebody thought that there was a little bit a little bit too much violence in bone collector or something something about a rat or something and I'm like, I, and, and in today's viewing, it's, it's kids talk compared, you know, to some of the well, stuff. When I, I, when I, I keep going back to, you know, the adverbial clause, when I teach my students this or that, but I think it's instructive because it kind of gives you an idea of my mind. 
I, I say one of the big give me a break moments is, is violence. And uh, in fact, in, in my book, we, we see very little violence. People die, people are injured, but it's almost all off camera. I also have no violence against children, no violence against animals, no sexual violence. I think I shot a, a, a dog with rabies or distemper. And I still took some flack for that. But anyway, you know, that it's not like old yeller. You know, I'm, I'm not going to kill a dog gratuitously just to get somebody's uh, reader's uh, sympathy. <laughs> and so, because I think it, Alfred Hitchcock is my model and he didn't, we didn't see anything violent. We thought we did in Psycho, but we didn't. We saw the knife and we saw Janet Lee screaming and we saw the blood, but we never saw her being stabbed, much less worse than that. And, uh, you know, I, I, and oh, there've been just terrible, terrible instances of uh, graphic violence in, in books and, and in films. And you know what I really, what I feel about that is, it's like the killing the dog, or I'll certainly imperil children, but I won't, I won't kill a child. It's like a failure of creativity. Yeah. The author or the filmmaker just doesn't want to spend the time to create the suspense that Alfred Hitchcock did. So they settle for the extended autopsy scene or the killer. We actually see the killer stabbing or sexually assaulting. I don't know if I mentioned it. I don't put any sexual violence in my, my books either uh, because these, these, should, these are supposed to be fun. You know, these are roller coasters. And right. how much fun you can have only so much fun in a crime novel when you're afraid to see what the serial killer is going to do next, you know, flaying skin off or something like that. We don't like that. We don't want to read it. We want to know that somebody's in peril and then they're, we learn that they may die, but we want it to be a, a healthy experience, not a, a dirty experience. My grandmother had a great expression about movies and uh, TV shows and, and books. And she said, you know, that's a dirty dishwater TV show, meaning that, of course, that it, it left her feeling unclean. And, you know, and, and back in, this is back in the, the 60s and, and, and 70s. And certainly there was, you know, violence on TV, but maybe she'd see a movie and, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Arthur Penn's wonderful film, Matt, Robert Altman's wonderful film. And there, of course, violence was necessary. These were allegorical films. That's, that was, that was fine. But I, I don't want to, I myself don't want to do that. And I, I tell my students, I don't think you, you probably want to do that, do that either. But anyway, I, and I have managed to forget the question myself. So we're on a par now. No, it's, it's all good. I, I do, uh, I want to throw this in here. I realize that we both share uh, an affinity for a particular uh, book. We both really, I think maybe on our top 10 is uh, Silence of the Lambs, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Tom Harris. Now there's a guy that opened our psyche to something that we probably had never seen before. I'm just going to go out on a limb there and say that. So when I wrote uh, a book called uh, Devour, very obvious that was loosely based on a similar feel because I have a really dark, perverse imagination. I knew uh, I liked you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty sick. The book did pretty well. I did get a few grandmothers in the crowd who said, you know, that was pretty, pretty dark, David. That was, well, you, you got a book with a knife on the cover and the titles devour. What am I missing here? But, it wasn't the book wasn't Happy Bunny's Happy Day at the, the <laughs> yeah. Now here's here's an interesting I, I want to get back on your couch one more time, Doctor, and that is this. I when I was growing up, I used to watch it has nothing to do with thriller, but you're gonna get the point. I used to watch this show with my mom. I loved it, called All Creatures Great and Small. 
Loved it. Could not get enough of it. It's about as simple and simplistic and beautiful and elegant and nonviolent as it possibly can get. So they came out with a new version, and I turned my wife onto it. We watched the entire series, and I don't know what it is. It's just super delightful, lovely, kind, the most serious thing in the whole thing. Dun, 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 dun. Will the calf be birthed? Will he make it? You know. Here's my point. And at the end of that, all of a sudden, after several weeks of that, Jeff, I'm going, wow, I really enjoyed all that sweetness and naivete. And maybe I need to soften my thrillers just a little bit. Well, I guess, David, the question is, you're, know, your, know your market. And I don't know what, how graphic the scenes were in Devour, but I, my experience has been that people, you know, they'll accept some of it, but, you know, put yourself in their shoes. And I don't necessarily mean any particular demographic, yeah. you know, the, the generic reader, but is this going to turn them off or will this uh, be a, a thrilling experience? And, you know, every author has to ask that for him or herself. Well, I did do, remember this phrase growing up in school that you learned in some class called psychological closure, mm-hmm. yeah. where you don't actually see it, but your mind fills in the blank. So as the book progressed, I I was a little bit less uh, paint by number. Here's what's happening. So anyway. One of my techniques that uh, you and any listeners out there who are writers uh, might find helpful is that uh, right up front, I set the stage for for, uh, violence to come. And so they know that I'm willing to kill people. In the opening of The Bone Collector, I'm talking about the book. The book was different from the movie. Mm -hmm. The movie was very good, but, but somewhat different. I scalded a couple to death. Okay. Scald them to death. We didn't see it happen, but you know we can imagine that it was not a pleasant experience for them, yeah. obviously. But well, this is, okay. The book has been out for so long; either you've read it or you hadn't. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, there are very, very few violent incidents throughout the book. It's all a, a race to see if we can save the victim. In the movie, just about everybody got whacked or died or something like that. And that's the convention of film. I understand that. But what I did was rather manipulatively let the readers know that I am willing to do horrific things. And I could then went on to set up horrific things like the rats and so forth. And then I I kind of, you know, both for the sake of uh, the the give me a break factor and for the sake of a little irony, because I think we need a little wink, wink, nod, nod in all of our books. I didn't kill many people, if any. In fact, I wrote one book. I'm not going to give you the, the, the title of it, but nobody died. Nobody died. It was all, well, there was an accidental death that had nothing to do with the, the crime. I mean, literally a, like a car crash. And nonetheless, the suspense held because it appeared people died and I was willing uh, to do that. But I just thought I'm going to write a book where nobody, nobody gets killed. I'll see if it works. And it did. Well, speaking of that very thing, Jeff, there was great scene near the end of the book, and we we still have yet to really talk about the final twist, but I'm going to do it here. There's a scene near the end of the book about how this particular family, because there's a TikTok through this thing, TikTok countdown, family's going to be killed. And then the minute the particular thing happens to the house, I'm sitting there going, oh, the whole book was building up to that, and then that happened, only to find out, or did it? One of my favorite, jeez. I'm, I'm so- well, thank you. Thank you, David. And that yeah. was that's really what I do. I'm a, you know, let me put it this way. I write novels, but I'm not really a novelist. I'm not Hemingway. I'm not Proust. I'm not uh, whatever James Brother 
not, not Jesse James, the other James is, you know, you know the, 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 the psychologist, Henry James and his brother are the other one. I don't know. One was a writer and one was a Frank. We'll call him Frank. Okay. Frank, Frank. James, yeah. so that was the, that was the brother. That was Jesse's brother, but I'm not talking about the gunslingers. I mean, the authors of the uh, 19th century authors. My, my point is I, I, I put words together. I tell stories. So that, I guess by definition, that makes me a novelist, but what I really am is an illusionist. I oh. use this direction sleight of hand, you know, costume changes, uh, quick change among my characters to give my readers a, you know, like a David Copperfield, the modern day David Copperfield or David Blaine kind of kind of show. And that's why when I get, you know, I've had good reviews and, and some bad reviews. And some of the bad reviews say that, well, you know, he's kind of fallen down by literary standards. The, uh, the, the plot's a little far-fetched. You know, I, I can't get into this. Well, that's because they're thinking Proust, or they're thinking, or I'll actually name a name here, a wonderful writer, George Pelicanos, who writes, he writes serious books about crime, you know, inner city crime and gangs. Uh, he worked on The Wire, for instance, that kind of book. And those are meaningful, important crime books with, you know, important lessons about society and justice. I don't do that. I'm here to do whatever I can to get readers to turn pages and at the end of the book, laugh and say, I never saw that coming. You know, like yeah. the, the dove flies out of the, the seat in the fourth row of the auditorium. And how the, did, did the dove get there? That's, you know, that's that's my job. And, you know, it's, it's, it's what I enjoy doing. It's, again, it's like what I would enjoy reading. Two quick things before we get to rapid fire questions as we get to wrap up, because I don't want to take your entire day. I, I personally could probably talk to you all day long. <laughs> So that I don't spoilerize this thing, you want to give Jeffrey Deavers the final twist. I, by the way, side note, your covers, especially the ones of late, this this cutout, geez, I don't know what you call it, but all a long string of them have been like this, and the colors are bold. I love your colors, Jeff, and your covers. The, the, the art department does a very good job on that. Wow. Okay, so so the people will so we can tempt people to go pick up the final twist. Give me that tasty little blurb that doesn't give it all away. We call this the elevator pitch. Yeah. Uh, that is the, uh, describe the book in the time it takes to get from the ground floor to the, like the publisher's offices on 28, whatever it is. Uh, the final twist is the third in the Coulter Shaw series. Coulter Shaw is a professional reward seeker. He goes through the internet, uh, looks at some paper papers and sees that a reward has been offered for a missing person or by the government for an escaped prisoner or a criminal that the police can't find. Now, and these, these rewards actually exist. I mean, we've seen them on milk cartons, we've seen them on TV, and they can vary anywhere from maybe a, a couple hundred dollars up to, to 25 million. The State Department is offering a reward for a terrorist in the Middle East that is uh, for information leading up to his, well, let's say his arrest and maybe not arrest but to find his location, $25 million. Well, so this is Coulter Shaw's job. He's a very restless person. He has to travel around the country in a, in a Winnebago. He's like the, like the gunslinger from the old days. Yeah. And he's in his Winnebago and he has a pony. Well, his pony is a Yamaha dirt bike that he rides sometimes. So he's kind of a modern day cowboy. He carries a gun when he can. He's got a concealed carry permit, which is valid in, in many states. He doesn't use it hardly ever, but he's got it if he needs it. And so he travels around looking for these rewards. And I'm hoping now the elevator has, is picking up people on every floor because I've gone a little bit <laughs> But so in, in any event, 
we learn he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need, need the money. In fact, sometimes he doesn't even get the reward or he gets it and he gives it to, to somebody for a, a good cause. And why is that? Because he needs the reward, the fact of the reward, because his mind is as restless as his body is. And he needs to, needs to wrestle with the, the problems of, that surround the reason a reward was offered. Because if a reward is offered, that means somebody cannot solve a problem. They cannot find uh, the girl, the teenage girl who's run off. They cannot find the serial killer. They cannot find the prisoner who cleverly escaped through a drain pipe from, from a, a prison. And uh, so he's, he gets on the case. In the final twist, well, I, I should back up just a little bit. Colter Shaw grew up in the uh, Sierra Nevadas in uh, a compound uh, with his family, his mother, his older brother, younger sister, and father. Mother and father were brilliant and distinguished academics at a, a school I don't mention, but it's basically Cal, University of California at Berkeley. Yeah. And, but then his father discovered something. And he had to flee. And he had to not only flee, but he had to learn survival techniques. And he had to teach those to his children because he knew something bad was coming. And the, the, the trilogy, that is the, uh, the Never Game, the first in the book, the second, The Goodbye Man, and the final twist are stories that each involve Coulter Shaw pursuing a reward. And that's his job. But at the same time, trying to discover, we learn up front, his father's dead, trying to discover how his father died and at whose hand and bring justice to that at the same time, making sure that the rest of his family stays safe. So those interweaving plots of the past and the present, I just thoroughly love. And at the same time, we've got the Never Game about uh, murder in Silicon Valley among the, the, the gaming world, the video gaming world, the Goodbye Man, a, uh, a, a cult in Washington state, kind of a, it's a, I don't bring politics into it. It's like kind of like a religious, a religious cult, and then the uh, in the final twist, which is set in San Francisco, while uh, Coulter is trying to find the uh, answer uh, to this big secret that his father uh, had. At the same time, he is involved in this trying to track, find a young woman musician who's gone uh, missing. And uh, there's a MacGuffin, this this satchel from the 1800, uh, 1900s that's tied up with the, the San Francisco earthquake. And uh, of course, then at the end. All these plots come together. I, I may sound excited about it because it was very exciting to choreograph this and get everything together. And then the book's all done. It's all finished. And then there is the final twist on the very last uh, paragraph of the last page. Yeah, it's worth the price of admission. I mean, it really is how you did that. And that's a, that's what I'm going to take away from this. And I've so thoroughly enjoyed this, to, to be able to learn the process and, you know, every once in a while you run across a book that you, and I've said this before, there's very few books that do this for me that I, that I really cherish the time that I sit down and spend with the characters. And then when it's over, I am so sad and disappointed that, that it's over. But the good news is November, I hope you'll come back and we'll talk about what, that'll be, that'll be hunting time. Hunting time. Yes. Yeah. The colder straw. And, and I just, uh, I'm not going to say too much about it, but this is solely a reward assignment because in the final twist, it was time for Coulter Shaw to lay the past to rest. I mean, it's a very satisfying conclusion, but from now on, the Coulter Shaw books will be him on rewards, full of twists and turns and surprises. But, uh, and his family may or may not come back, but, but essentially I call the, uh, the Never Game, The Goodbye Man, and The Final Twist, the Echo Ridge Trilogy, the origin story yeah. of Coulter Shaw. And they each can be read separately, but you know that, that's 
that's the, you know, kind of the foundational uh, sure. work works about Coulter. And uh, The Hunting Time is a really fast moving, uh, fast moving book. And uh, with twists, I guarantee that readers aren't going to figure out. And also look for a Coulter Shaw short story that will be out, I think in the book's out in November. This will probably be August or uh, September. You know, you can just go to my website and see this. And then I've got a, that one of those Amazon original shorts called Scheme. And uh, again, I don't know the publication date. So we've got a couple things uh, okay. coming up if you like. Oh, awesome. Well, I look forward to that. Yeah, and, and I, I am now curious to go back to The Never Game. It, that was released in 2019 and learn more of that history. Although now that I know that the, his, the past is now put to bed, so to speak. And that final scene with his brother, yep. I'm not going to say anything, but boy, it does, it leaves you, I'm going to say this. What I liked about it is it felt very realistic. There wasn't, uh, sometimes I get tired of the perfect bows that are at the, at the yeah, end exactly. of a story. And it's like, well, here you go. Give me a break, right? And then. Yeah. Uh, and I, let me just say one one more thing if I can. Sure. The Never Game was bought by Disney to become a series for CBS. And that it's going to star Justin Hartley from a TV show, show called This Is Us, uh, produced by Ken Olin, who did, you know, 30-something. 30 30-something, 30 yeah. Alias, and uh, I think he well, he's a producer and director of, of This Is Us, and so that's that's all exciting. You know, I like network TV uh, yeah. a lot. I, I love I love cable. I, I watch most of my stuff on on cable, but there's nothing like network TV. And there, you know, you reach eight, 10, 15 million people, and we don't know what the how many people tune into Netflix and Amazon Prime and so forth. That you, those figures aren't available, but we know for a fact, thanks to Nielsen, that. You know, there are eight, 10 million people looking at something you you did. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see that. It should be uh, next year. You know, these things, long lead times. Wow. Two last things before we get into rapid fire questions. I may have said that before. Number one is last night I'm getting ready. To, we're crawling into bed, getting ready to call it a night, toes up, lights out. And I turned to my wife and I said, babe, you're not going to believe how many revisions Jeff does on his books. And she mm -hmm. said, how many? And I said the number which I'm going to have you say. And for my writer friends, if you think you're feeling pretty good after the second or the third, or maybe if you really stretch yourself and go like six revisions and you're like, yeah, I've got this. Then wait till you hear what Jeff's going to tell you how many his average revision is. And I'll, I'll tell you about the, the whole editing rewriting process. Hemingway said, there are no great writers. There are only great rewriters. And that's, I, I think that's absolutely true. I do 50 revisions, 50 rewrites. Now, you have to understand, that is not 50 start-to-finish revampings, because for one thing, with my outline, the first draft is pretty much there, but it's clunky, it's, it's clumsy. I will have, you know, the outline section may say, uh, Coulter Shaw discovers a clue in the old mill. Well, that's all it says. I mean, I know that's gotta happen for the plot, but then I've got to sit down, put myself in the old mill, and cleverly have Coulter Shaw find something. And I may, I may make mistakes there. Coulter Shaw may get off his bike twice. You know, he may have his gun in his left hand or his gun in his right hand in one paragraph, gun in the other hand later. So I've got to fix, fix that up. So now here, and I, I'm not going to belabor this but very quickly. Here's what I do. Again, uh -huh. I, I say this so often, but this is how I do it. Whatever works for you works. I do the first edits on the computer because I can move chapters around. I can search and replace characters' names. I can, if I have in the back of my mind a, an incident like Coulter, Coulter Shaw in the mill, 
and I need to find that section. And where the hell is it? You know, well, I hit, you know, uh, control F, find and word and type in old mill and bang, there it is. Yeah. So uh, it, it makes it very easy. The other thing I can do is with all my subplots, I put codes in for my subplots. And uh, so, and, and because we need to pace the story out very carefully. And I might find that in the outline, the pacing works perfectly, but when the text is actually created, maybe the chapter becomes much longer than I thought or much shorter. So for each of my subplots, I put a, a very simple code in, and it would be like, you know, four ampersands or four question marks for one, four question marks for another, and I don't know, maybe five numeral fives for one. And so when I want to see where those all appear in the book, I just hit, I search ampersands, five ampersands. It takes me there. I hit it, hit the search again, takes me uh, to another one. I think, oh no, this is too far away. This is, I thought this would work, but no, this is like four chapters away. We've got to get back to that. So anyway, that's the computer. Wow. That's very good. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have to print it out um, and edit the next stage stages on the, uh, on paper. And that's really, that's like, it's like, you know, 25 on the computer, 20 on print. And then because we see things on paper that we didn't see on the screen, it, it just, is true. It just happens. You know, I don't know. It's something about our the physiology or the morphology of our eyes and the physiology of, you know, the, the neurology of our, our reading process and mistakes jump out and you'll, you'll have to change that. Yeah. And then, but then what I do, I have a program called natural reader, and this is not product placement because I don't get any money from them. I actually, I bought it, although you get, there's a free version. If, if, I think it has ads, but I, I didn't want the ads, so it's free. And uh, I just load that. Uh, I, I turn my, my manuscript into a PDF. Uh -huh. I just save it as a PDF. Load that into Natural Reader and have Natural Reader read me the book word for word. And I follow along on my written manuscript word for word with a pen. And I find lots of typos. I find lots of mistakes there. I'll find I forgot to put a period in here. I put two commas, and it, it it makes for a much cleaner manuscript. So yes, in answer to your question, I rewrite uh, a lot. Uh, now, so there's some authors who will write a chapter and then revise that 10 times before they go on. You know, everybody rewrites. I yeah. just uh, find that that's uh, the method that's worked for me. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those guys that tends to, uh, I'll write for the day, and then I come back and start my day by reading what I wrote and then kind of sure. finesse it and so forth. Okay, last question that just is burning a hole in my brain, and you've 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 kind of you, you've kind of given it to me for the last hour and a half. But if I said, Jeff, just give me that one thing, what's the one best piece of advice for working writers to make it in this business? What would that be? Well, I can't give one piece of advice. I would give. You're allowed up to twelve. Go ahead. I'll do a I'll do a trio here. <clears throat> I would say plan out what you're going to write. Don't have to outline the way I do, but you have to plan out uh, what you're going to write. Remember, your goal is to create an emotional response in the reader. And what you, as the writer, take out of it is irrelevant. In other words, we'll just assume, take as a given, you enjoy writing. Because if you don't enjoy doing it, you have no business in this business. So just remember, your goal is not to satisfy yourself, not to make yourself happy, not to grin because you've written a good passage. You should, you should pat yourself on the back and you should grin when you know that you have created 
a great emotional response in the hearts of the readers. And number three is remember that rejection is a speed bump. It's not a brick wall. Just keep at it. That's, that's beautiful. I love that. Very succinct, very concise. By the way, that elevator pitch earlier, it was World Trade Center that we were going to That was to trade, trade level. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right, it is time for rapid fire questions. Side note, your buddy John Gilstrap really rocked this feature, so no pressure there. Well, I do I do terrible at him. Outliner, he's a pantser, you see. I'm an outliner. I plan, I take the questions and, and write them down and, and study them and research them. But go ahead, I'll do okay. my best. All right, this is going to be really super easy. And by the way, that's right. I just now remember John is completely uh, a pantser, but, but his books, you know, it's so funny. It's It goes back to this, what works for you, right? Exactly. All right, number one, you're invited to a dinner party with me and my lovely wife. This is a classic question on the show. Here in San Diego, everything's taken care of. All you need to do is bring two guests. You can bring your uh, esteemed uh, partner if you'd like to, but we bring two extra guests to uh, round out our gathering. They can be living or past, but they're two people you'd love to spend an evening chatting with along with Tammy and myself. Who would those two be and why? I would, for one, I would pick John Le Carre. I mean, this is, he's no longer with us, but this, sure. we kind of transcend that. Le Carre was my favorite thriller writer. And uh, he's not a thriller writer. He's a espionage writer, but his books transcend the genre. They are uh, literary works and examine geopolitical issues. This man was so talented. He not only wrote incredible and long books, very involved, brilliant, perceptive uh, views of, of human nature and government and politics. He wrote, he was a great stylist. He put words together very well. And damn it, when he had his books done on tape, well, tape then, but, you know, audio now, sure. he read them himself in a brilliant voice in, get this, English, French, and German. So is if that's not intimidating, are you and Tammy still sure you want to have him there? Because he might kind of take over the... Uh, all right. And I guess, oh my gosh, I guess uh, the other, oh, there are just so many wonderful, wonderful people. But I'll keep it with a literary theme. And I would have uh, Bill Shakespeare come because I consider him the greatest uh, writer, living writer, well, living, the greatest writer in the history of the world. And uh, I also will say that uh, my great, 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 whatever he was, some ancestor, Edward de Vere, the Dever, de Vere, oh. 17th Earl of Oxford. I don't think he claimed it, but it was claimed that he wrote Shakespeare's plays. And I had a cousin who believed this, and it, it's not true. I mean, it simply is not true. Shakespeare wrote his own own material. Conspiracy theories, fake news, even back then. So that's my <laughs> uh, question two, please. And I like the fact that you called him Bill, because you guys are that tight, right? We're, we're, we're close, yeah. My pal, Bill. All right. <clears throat> Number two, rapid card question. One of your latest thrillers has just been picked up by Hollywood. Let's call it the final twist since I just finished it. Okay. And you've been asked to consult on the film, of course, but the part of the deal is to make a cameo. You have to make a cameo a la Alfred Hitchcock. What character from the final twist would you play and why? I would, there's a, a very exciting set piece in the, the middle of the book. And I can't give that away, but it takes place in a club. I will say that. And it's a very, uh, a very scary, consuming kind of thing. Yes. There is a, a character who is briefly alive until he meets his fate. 
that's who I would play. But I should back up. I did play a cameo on TV. I'm in the, the Actors Guild. And I, I was on a, a, a soap opera called As the World Turns. And I, I played, that happened because the producer of the show was a big fan of mine and just asked me if I wanted to be on the show. And I thought cameo, I'd walk on like Hitchcock. Oh no, I was delivered a, a, a stack of scripts this big. I, I was on the, the set for a week acting and I did my own stunt work. I was killed, thank God, at the end. You couldn't kill me fast enough. It was the most stressful time of my life because these actors, I'm not an actor. I mean, yeah. I, I knew the lines and I did. I walked through the parts and you know, they didn't care. I wasn't taking anybody's job, yeah. but they, they've worked together for so long. They used the script as kind of a jumping off point. Well, yeah. to me, the script was set in concrete. I was waiting for the line to be led to me and I didn't have the fed to me. They didn't have the line, but finally I worked that out and it was a, a lot. So yeah. that's an interesting from now on, I'm just being dead bodies. <laughs> All right, our final rapid fire question. It's a three-parter. What's the one piece of equipment, the one beverage, and the one book you can't live without, or at least that you love having around? So piece of equipment, beverage, book. Okay, the one, uh, the one piece of equipment is my computer. Sure. Uh, because I, I live on my computer and I showed you the lack of keys and I shouldn't, it's, it's any computer, not just this, I'm not sentimentally attached to this one in particular. My beverage would be uh, Crown Royal, uh, the Canadian uh, uh, whiskey, which I absolutely love. And the book I can't uh, live without, oh my gosh, there are just so many of them. I guess the one I keep, I guess the one I keep returning to most often is uh, the collected poems of T.S. Eliot. And, uh, you know, I, I will read, I'll go back to a thriller like Silence of the Lambs, which is one of my favorite thrillers. Sure. I'll read Day of the Jackal. I'll read, uh, you know, Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch character, love him. I'll read uh, Jack Reacher, Lee Child's character. And those are wonderful, wonderful books. But, I, you know, I'll read then maybe a year or two later, I might go back to them. But poetry, I, I love poetry is, is magical. And you can lose yourself in the, uh, you can lose yourself in poetry. So I guess that's how I, how he'd answer it. Of course, the more Crown Royal you drink, the less the poetry makes sense. So uh, that could, I don't know that it might be a self-defeating uh, goal. I do have a question though, now that we're on that and we, I won't take too long about it. <clears throat> there are guys who are whiskey drinkers, like, like Kentucky, you know, Kentucky whiskey and that bourbon and so forth. What is the magic about Crown Royal? Do you suppose it is for you? Cause that's, those are, those are distinctly two different camps. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I love bourbon. I have I drink bourbon as well, but it's a, it's a, a different well, a di different flavor, of course. Sure. But also a different experience. Many of the bourbons are very high alcohol, and I I don't I, I prefer lesser alcohol. Crown Royal is a it's a little sweeter, it's a little milder, and it's I don't know it's like I guess forty percent alcohol. It's eighty proof. I think it's it's not the high stuff like the like the bourbons are. But yeah. it's simply a different a different taste. I, I guess I, I would probably, it's like with, with wines, I love wines as well. You know, you might start with a, uh, I'm sure you or certainly some of your, your listeners out there know wines. So you might start with a, um, you know, a Riesling, a light white. And then for the next course, you might go into a Chablis, which is a white Burgundy, mm -hmm. Chardonnay based, a little stronger. And then for dinner, you know, you might have a nice Cabernet or a nice Pinot Noir going for red. Well, so Crown Royal would kind of be a starting cocktail. It's a little sweeter and lighter. And then you might uh, have, uh, you know, after dinner, maybe with a little cheese or something, a nice uh, Blanton's or Knob Creek or uh, Woodford Reserve, Angel's Envy, uh, some of those, uh, some of those wonderful beverages. 
Awesome. All right, I better uh, run off now. I've got a, uh, another thing to jump to, but I can't tell you how much fun this is. I could go for another hour, David. I'll tell you yeah. that right now. I, 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 Jeffrey, I mean, I mean, come on, this was, this was the highlight of my week and I thank you so much. And I know, I know we've really gone long, but I, I really oh, do appreciate it. Oh, well, my absolute pleasure, David. And I, I'm, I'm actually, I'll be talking to John fairly soon. I will thank him so much for putting us together. What a great time. What a great time we had. All totally. right. You take care now and, and enjoy your dinner party with your wife, whoever's there. Thank you. <laughs> okay, See you now. Oh my gosh. Was that incredible i think i've set a new record almost is it two hours this particular podcast i mean i could have talked to jeff for another hour or two easily and i didn't even get to finish because he had to he had to run off to another event but if you'd like to learn more visit jeffreydeaver.com you can follow him on twitter and facebook at jeffrey deaver and you can follow him on instagram at official jeffrey deaver but the book is Final twist, and oh boy, you're in for a special treat. Now, switching channels, if you will, to next week. Another prolific writer, someone I was not aware of, but I am getting into reading the book right now. The book is called The Matchmaker, and we're talking about Paul Vittich. Let me tell you something. This book, if you, let me do this for you. Crime Reads, quote here. An insightful, thought-provoking story. In short, this promises to be one of the year's premier spy novels. Do you like spy novels? You're going to love this. Another favorite here by Lit Hub. A richly detailed work of investigative crime writing, perfect for fans of procedurals and spy fiction alike. If you like Cold War spy thrillers, you're going to love The Matchmaker. Paul Vittich. That is March 17th. Quick note. For those of you who have not gone by and uh, subscribed yet to our YouTube channel, would you do that? It wouldn't take but a quick little second. There's a little red button on the right-hand side called subscribe. Go to youtube.com slash David Temple author and subscribe. And that way, every time a new episode drops, you'll be uh, alerted of that. Of course, you can also go to our website. Hello, thethrillerzone.com. And of course, you can always hear us on all of your favorite channels. Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're there. And thank you for supporting this show. As you know, it takes a lot to put these shows together. And without you, we wouldn't be able to do it. So I think we've got our marching orders. I hope you make it a great week and we will see you next week. I'm David Temple, your host. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week on The Thriller Zone.